Who is God? Where did he come from? What can we possibly know about him? We'll talk about that and a lot more today on BibleStudyPodcast.org starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, June the 6th, and this is Toby. Of course, on Wednesdays, we do cultural issues or apologetics, and right now we're in the middle of our um, of our series on worldviews. Today, we're going to be talking about who God is. But before we get into today's lesson, I just have a couple quick announcements. The first announcement is that we do have our bumper stickers now. It says uh, BibleStudyPodcast.org, Growing Closer to God, One Podcast at a Time. It's a you know it's a regular size bumper sticker, and they're available for $3.50. We recently had to upgrade our server uh, in order to meet the need that we had for as far as bandwidth goes, because on our old server, we were just, we were running out of room. We were having way too many downloads. And so we had to upgrade the server. It's now uh, a pretty expensive project for me. So to help me offset the costs for, um, for the, the server upgrades, if anybody wants a bumper sticker, they're $3.50 each delivered in the United States. And if you want one, go ahead and just go to BibleStudyPodcasts.org and go to contact at the top and just let me know. And I can give you either a mailing address or a PayPal address, however you prefer to pay for it. But if you feel led to help this ministry out and to help us uh, offset the costs of the of the server upgrade, it would be such a blessing to us if you could get a sticker or two, and it would get the word uh, the word out there that you know BibleStudyPodcast.org is is a is a destination. It's a place where people can go and and learn about the Bible. So if that's something that you are interested in, just go to to BibleStudyPodcast.org, click contact, and shoot me an email. And I'll get back to you with uh, either an address to send a payment to or um, uh, an email address to PayPal to. If you'll remember, last week we uh, we covered the introduction to worldviews. One of the worldviews that we really discussed was humanism. And if you, if you didn't listen to that lesson, you know, go ahead and go back and, and listen to it. It's very interesting. I got a letter this last week from a humanist, and I'm not going to use a name or anything like that. Uh, I will say that it's somebody from uh, a, a Mormon or Latter-day Saints organization. Uh, but anyway, this is the letter that I got from them, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, bits and pieces of it here. It says, uh, Toby, I have to say that I am disappointed with the Christian Worldview intro podcast in this podcast, you fell into the straw man logical fallacy. I can tell you that as a humanist, I do understand that there are consequences to my actions. I would have to say that most people understand that one's actions are going to have consequences. I would have to say that my ethics as a humanist are based on empathy. I, as a human being, feel pain and I do not want to do things that cause pain, either emotional or physical, in myself. My ethics are thus based on the concept that other humans operate on the same principle, and thus, if my actions would cause them pain, I should not do them. I think this can be seen as we look at history. In the past, routine torture of humans and animals, slavery, etc., were common practice with both Christians and non-Christians. As we humans realized and learned more about the human condition, and we began to empathize with other persons... 
and then he just leaves it there. Uh, the next sentence, slavery is one good example. In the U.S., slavery was supported by both Christians in the South and opposed by Christians in the North. Those in the North, I would argue, reasoned that slavery was wrong and then found passages in the Bible to support their anti-slavery arguments. Now, let me just pick this apart a little bit. First of all, I am not guilty of the straw man logical fallacy. Uh, the straw man is actually not a logical fallacy. It has nothing to do with logic. It is an argumentative fallacy, but it's not a logical fallacy. And the reason that I am not guilty of committing the straw man fallacy is because I quoted verbatim the Humanist Manifesto. And if you have any doubts about what it says, you can find it online. You will find that I read it word for word. So if I read what they said, how can I be guilty of a straw man fallacy? A straw man fallacy is where you misrepresent one side. I have absolutely no interest in misrepresenting anybody, whether it's Christians or non-Christians. I don't believe that's a valid way of, uh, of arguing, and I don't think it's a Christian way of arguing either. So I did not misrepresent uh, the humanist position. And if you are a humanist and you would like to show me how I misrepresented what you believe by using the Humanist Manifesto, go ahead and get in contact with me and quote the Humanist Manifesto and show me where I'm wrong. And second of all, you said that you understand that there are consequences to your actions, but you never said where the consequences to your actions are. A humanist would say that the consequences to their actions are in the here and now, but there's no consequence in the afterlife because the humanist denies the existence of an afterlife. So ultimately, your actions, while they may have consequences, they don't have eternal consequences. And third, if you are basing your ethics on empathy, what's to say that that's the way that ethics must be based? The Humanist Manifesto outlines that you should be pursuing pleasure for yourself. You should enjoy the here and now. Well, what happens when someone wants to have an affair on their wife? Should they base their decision on the pursuit of their pleasure or on the empathy that they hold toward their wife when their wife finds out that they had an affair? This system of ethics makes absolutely no sense because people have different levels of empathy. It's very subjective. And then he ends his email here by saying, Now I have been thinking about Christianity for some time now. That is the reason that I listened to your podcast. But I have to say that this episode embodied the reason I am not a Christian. Bad logic, bad reasoning, and a contempt for those who think differently. If this is the Christian worldview, I'm glad it is not my view. Well, first of all, no, that is not the Christian worldview. And second of all, if you want to talk about a straw man fallacy, saying that we have bad logic, bad reasoning, and contempt for those who think differently. That is a straw man. The Christian worldview doesn't hold contempt for anybody. The Christian worldview, the truly Christian worldview, loves everybody equally. If you would take the time to show me where the bad logic is in my reasoning, show me how my reasoning is bad, I will be more than happy to admit that I have bad logic, bad reasoning, and contempt for those who think differently. But this isn't the case. This is totally a straw man argument on your behalf. Let me just go ahead and, and read you what I wrote back to this guy. I said, I was very careful not to build a straw man argument. What I did was read straight out of the Humanist Manifesto. I quoted it verbatim. It is quite obvious to me that you don't agree with it yourself, yet you claim to embrace it. Why is that? The fact is that while you may base your ethics on empathy, 
Other humanists, such as Hitler, and yes, Hitler was a humanist, have based their ethics on personal gain or satisfaction, utilitarianism, etc. I'm glad to know that you think there are absolute human values, but by embracing absolute human values, you have rejected one of the outlined tenets of humanism. If you still disagree with me, look back at recent history, 1960 to the present, and notice the correlation between the rise of humanism and the rise of violent crime, alcoholism, drug usage. You are simply ignoring the facts if you think that humanism rests on anything other than subjective morality. Don't give up on your search for the truth, because if you're being honest, it will lead you straight to the foot of the cross in him, Toby. But so that was that. There you have an argument from a humanist in response to last week's message. This week's message, we're going to be talking about who God is. Let's just start really quickly here with a word of prayer. Lord in heaven, thank you so much for this podcast, and thank you so much for revealing yourself to us through your word and through nature, Lord. We ask today that you would help us learn more about you and understand you in accordance with what you have revealed about yourself. For your glory, Lord, because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let's just go ahead and start off with the question, where did God come from? This is a question that a lot of kids will ask, and so it's a very common question. It's something that we should definitely have an answer to. The fact is, God didn't come from anywhere. You might have heard uh, one of our previous podcasts here in which I told the story about how, you know, last year my son was in Cub Scouts and he was doing a program called God and and Me for his Cub Scouts troop, which was moderated by a local pastor. And at the first meeting, one of the boys asked the pastor, where did God come from and how did he get up there? And in response, the pastor said, well, I don't know where God came from. And the Bible really doesn't tell us how he got up there. So I don't really know. It's something that we just have to believe in faith. Parents, this is absolutely the worst answer you can ever give your child to a question like this. As that child grows older and tries to make sense of who God is, that answer that the pastor gave him will have served to plant seeds of doubt. The fact of the matter is this, nothing and nobody created God and nothing brought him into existence. He is the first cause of all things. And as the first cause, nothing could have caused him. If something created God or caused God, then we'd have to ask what created the being that created God. And then we'd have to ask what created the thing that created the thing that created God, and so on and so forth. And what do we have here? We end up with the fallacy of infinite regression. See, an infinite sequence of causes is impossible because there's no beginning and no end to an infinite sequence of causes. But God is God now. And if there were an infinite sequence of causes, then God today would be at the end of that sequence of events. So therefore, there could not be an infinite regression of causes. The very idea of God contains the idea that he is eternal. To ask where God came from is actually what a philosopher would call a category mistake, because you're categorizing him with things that have a beginning. So to ask where God came from is just as invalid as asking, where is the bachelor's wife? Or to say that God somehow got up to where he is now is just as invalid as saying this food tastes sort of aquamarine bluish. Well, just like taste doesn't have 
color, God doesn't have a beginning. He has always existed as he exists now. God exists eternally, and therefore, he is self-standing. A theologian would say that he has aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, if you want to go to the dictionary and find a definition for that word. But it basically means that he exists in and of himself, independent of and prior to anything and everything else, including the universe. This doesn't mean that he was self-caused, though, because, again, he is uncaused. He is a being who cannot have been caused because he is a necessary being. Mortimer Adler wrote a fantastic book called How to Think About God, if you want to have a fuller explanation of what it means for God to be a necessary being. But essentially, if anything exists which depends on something prior to its existence for its existence, it's called a contingent thing. But if a contingent thing exists, then a necessary being exists. What are we contingent upon? We're contingent upon our parents, and our parents are contingent upon our grandparents, and our grandparents are contingent upon, you know, our great-grandparents, and so on. And when Mortimer Adler came to this realization, it wasn't long before he gave up his agnosticism and became a Christian. So now we know that God didn't come from anywhere, but that he's been there forever. Now let's ask, who is God? Well, the Bible affirms that God is the first and last. In Isaiah 44, 6, for example, there are several places where he's called uh, the first and last. But Isaiah 44, 6 is one place. In Revelation 1, 8, he refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. And in the Greek alphabet, of course, Alpha is the first letter and Omega is the last letter. This is just another way of saying that God is eternal. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says that he lives forever and his rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. Psalm 92 tells us that God is from everlasting to everlasting. And Psalm 93 too tells us that God is just from everlasting. What is everlasting? Everlasting is eternity. It's never beginning, never ending. We also know that God is unchanging and unchangeable. Why can't he change? Because he is, as a philosopher would say, pure actuality. He has no potential. Because he is eternal, any potential for God to have changed would have already been exhausted. God doesn't have any parts because he is pure and infinite in his being. And if he had parts, he couldn't be infinite since you can always add more parts to something consisting of parts. But God is infinite. Nothing can be added to him. Nothing can be added to infinity. If you have an infinite number of marbles and you get three more and put it in with your other marbles, how many do you have? Well, you still have an infinite number of marbles. Also, because God is perfect and lacking in nothing, it's impossible for him to change. Whatever changes acquires something new, whether it's information or characteristics, you know, etc. But if God acquired anything new, it would require that he change. Every time I learn something, something about me changes. But God affirms in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. Now, one objection that is commonly voiced against our faith, against the Christian faith, is that we believe that God can do anything and everything. And if you listened to my podcast on the fallacy 
of equivocation. You're familiar with the objection, which is an invalid one, keep in mind, that goes, if God can do everything, can he create a rock too heavy for him to lift? And there are several reasons that this objection is invalid, but one of them is that we as Christians don't believe that God can do absolutely anything and everything. He can only do everything which is logically possible. It is impossible for God to change, which is just one example of something that we believe God is incapable of. And we'll get into a couple more things that we don't believe he can do here in just a minute. But we also know that God is omnipotent, which means that he is all-powerful. Remember, being all-powerful doesn't mean that God can do what is logically contradictory or contrary to his nature. He can't force us to love him. That's logically contradictory because love involves a free choice. So it can't be forced. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 6.18 that he cannot lie. Why? Because it's contrary to his nature. Also, Job chapter 11 verses 7 through 11 tells us that he has no limits. Psalm 147.5 tells us that he has abundant power and that his understanding is beyond measure. In Isaiah 43.13, Isaiah said of God, quote, And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work and who will reverse it? It's obviously a rhetorical question. He works and nobody has the ability to reverse it because God is omnipotent. In Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, Jeremiah says, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Why is nothing too hard for him? Because he is able to do absolutely everything that is logically possible. Now, we also know that God is holy and righteous. And by this, I mean that he is totally and completely separate from creation and from evil. He has no evil in him, and therefore he is capable of executing perfect justice. Now, some people will say, well, if God created everything, then he created evil. Therefore, God is evil. Well, no, evil is a privation of what is good. God created everything that is good, and he also created free will. And when free will is in the equation, there's the possibility for a privation or a corruption of the good that he created. In Leviticus eleven forty-five, God says, therefore, be holy, because I am holy. Now, you remember how I said that God has no parts? There are no parts uh, that he's composed of? This means that God is omnipresent as well. He is in all places at all times. And this is different from the New Age or the pantheistic worldview, which asserts that God is all places. He is all things. Rather, we believe that God is present in all places, but he is distinctly separate from any and all material things. Remember, he is the cause of creation. Therefore, to say that God is, you know, this chair is to confuse the cause with the effect. The chair is the effect of God's creation. First Kings 8.27 says, The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. Psalm 137.7 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And again, this is a redundant question. The answer is obviously nowhere. Why? Because God is everywhere. 
And in addition to being omnipresent, he is also omniscient, which means he is all-knowing. He knows the past as perfectly as he knows the present and the future. Remember, God can't change. If God learned things as events transpired, he would be acquiring new knowledge, and thus he would be changing. But the Bible affirms that God does know the future. This is one of the tests for a false prophet, and we find that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22. If a prophet foretells of something that doesn't come to pass, then we know that God didn't send them. Why? Because God knows the future. Also, because God has no parts, God's knowledge is identical to his nature. He is one. Everything is congruent, consistent with every other thing that we can say about God. If God is infinite, and if God is eternal, and if God has knowledge, then God's knowledge must be infinite and eternal. If God in his being is unchanging, then his knowledge must be unchanging. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Isaiah 48.3 records God as proclaiming, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. How could he have made them known ahead of time? Because he knows all things, past, present, and future. Also in Isaiah, God refers to his ability to make infallible predictions of the future as being irrefutable evidence that he is the true God. He challenges the false gods to foretell the future. Why? Because he can tell the future, and because the fact that he knows the future is one of many things that sets him apart from all the false gods. So these are just some of God's qualities, some of his attributes, but we also know that God is the creator of the universe. The Bible tells us that God brought all things into existence, including us. In Isaiah forty-four twenty-four, God says, I am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. When we look at the stars in the sky, we see order in creation. Why? Because God created all of it with order. And as such, God is the author of life. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God decided to make man. How? In his own image. And what does that mean? It means basically you have the ability to think and to reason. And this, this distinguishes you from the rest of creation. Every other animal acts on instinct or habit, but we as humans, we have the ability to act on reason and reason alone. And this is commonly referred to as free will. We have the ability to use our reason to make a distinction between what is morally right and morally wrong. We have intellect by which we can determine whether something is logical or not. God designed us from the very beginning. And this is affirmed in Isaiah forty four twenty four, which also says that God is the one who formed us in the womb. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, verse 13, that God wove us together in the wombs of our mothers. This is in direct contrast. It's in direct conflict with the idea that we are a product of random genetic mutations. When we look at the irreducible complexity of the human cell, we find God's fingerprint on the very essence of our being. 
Irreducible complexity, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, just means that a thing or a being is as simple as it can possibly be, and that to make it any more simple would be to eliminate it. The human cell is composed of a lot of different parts, and if you were to take out just one part, the whole cell would be rendered ineffective. Michael Behe wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box, which demonstrates that the human cell is very precisely designed. If you were to take away any single component that exists, it wouldn't work anymore. Therefore, those components that make up the human cell could not have evolved into existence because if one part evolved, well, the other parts had no reason to be there to begin with. Each part needs every other part in the human cell in order for the human cell to work. So why does all of this matter? It matters because it tells us who we are in God's eyes. And this is an important point in examining and understanding the Christian worldview because if the universe and everything in it was created by a God who was and is personal, infinitely wise, all-knowing, and all-powerful, then he must have had a reason for creating us. There must have been a purpose that he had in doing all of this. Contrary to humanism, which asserts that we are the result of a random evolutionary process, the Bible tells us that we are here because God created us and put us here. According to the Bible, God created us to have dominion over the earth. Therefore, we have a greater intrinsic or moral value than do plants or animals. Unlike what the New Age worldview uh, asserts, you know, we discussed that last week, we are separate and superior in our moral and intrinsic value in God's eyes. There are environmentalists who have tied themselves to trees in an effort to prevent that tree from being cut down. And in essence, they are viewing their own life as being equally intrinsically important as that of the tree. The Bible tells us that God formed us in a way that he formed nothing else in all of creation. In Genesis 2-7, we're told that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. No other living thing is recorded as being created like that. What is the breath of life? It's the spirit. It's the soul. We're composed of both material and immaterial or spiritual elements. When those elements interact, we get who we are in accordance with our own unique personalities. Now, the implication here is what separates the Christian worldview from any other worldview. You see, we have been created for fellowship with God. This is implied in Genesis 2-7, and John 17-3 tells us that having a relationship with God is the very essence of eternal life. We were made to partake of an infinitely personal relationship with with God. We were made to love him because he first loved us. Now, not everyone chooses to live for that purpose, but they choose to pursue their own personal happiness instead. You see, there is a God-shaped hole in the hearts of all people, and some people will try to fill that hole with money. Some people will try to fill that hole with relationships, but it's a God-shaped hole. There's something in our life that only a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ can fulfill. Why did God put the tree in the Garden of Eden? To give us the right to make a choice. But there is something wrong with choosing disobedience to God. 
So now we know who God is. Next time, uh, which will be in two weeks, because next week we're doing the question and answer session for uh, for the month of June. But in two weeks, we'll be talking about what the Bible is, who wrote it, who determined what would be in it, and what that all means to us. Let's just close with a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being all-knowing and all-wise. And Lord, we just... We bow down today and we praise you for who you are. Lord, we ask that you would help us to make sense of all the things that we've learned today. We ask that you would help us to understand more deeply the reason you created us. And Lord, help us to embrace the personal relationship with you that you created us for. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, again, next week we are going to be having the... uh, the question and answer session for the month of June. If you have any questions pertaining to God, theology, Christianity, world religions, anything, go ahead and shoot that over to me. I'll go ahead and try to answer that for you either through email or next week on the podcast for Wednesday. So God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys have a great week.